so good to be with all of you here together, digitally, physically. I'm just so, so grateful for the church. I, I think this is my dad. I was talking to my mom about this a couple of years ago. Um, I love the church so deeply. And um, I don't, it's hard to, it's hard when you think about these things that you feel like you didn't earn or you didn't work for that are just present in your soul. Where do they come from? And I was talking to my mom about it and she said, you know, to me that, that's your dad. Your dad just loves the church and has always loved the church. And so of all the foibles and flaws that I've inherited, not, not many from my dad, clearly, um, uh, his love for the church, I am so grateful for that because I, I, I look forward to Sundays. I look forward to gathering. I look forward to being together as a family. So let's go ahead and begin. Um, we, like Rick said, are ending the Christ poem. We've spent two weeks on it already. This is our third and final week. Am I close enough to this mic, by the way, guys? Like that? That better? Okay. Um, these three weeks have been such a highlight for me because we're, we're talking about Jesus, whom we love, whom we adore, who we worship, who we wake up and greet every day. And this morning, I feel like I have, I feel like I'm carrying this weight of wonder um, for Jesus, this weight maybe even two weights of wonder as, as I've spent all week trying to prepare and think about this text, about the beauty of who God is and who Jesus is and what this means then for you and for me. Um, and I pray this morning um, that this text would resonate deep in our hearts and our souls, that this text would reach into our hearts and, and pluck strings and that there would be a response in our souls to this beautiful passage. So I'm going to read it for us and then pray, and then we can start. Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this gathering. We thank you for this text. We are blown away to be your children. We are stunned that we know the person who made us, and that we can talk to you even right now. Lord, I ask that the beauty of this ancient truth would, would live in our hearts this week. Thank you, Father. Amen. Um, I think uh, today's sermon is a little bit like a hot tub. 
And I feel like that might be an awkward thing to say. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. That's a fine. Don't just erase that from the podcast. Um, here's, here's what I mean. We all know, or the majority of us know at least, what a hot tub feels like. We've experienced a hot tub at one point or another in our lives. And I feel like all the truths we're going to talk about today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you already know this stuff. But the difference is, even though we all know what a hot tub feels like, none of us right now are in a hot tub, I think. I don't know what's going on in Zoom world, but... Can we do a watch party at your house next week? Um, And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to feel, feel these truths. Does that make sense? We all know what a hot tub feels like, but it's a very different, none of us are in a hot tub right now. None of us are feeling that. This morning, I want us to feel these truths in a, in a powerful way. So um, let's, let's uh, dive into the, the two verses that we're going through today. And I want to read them again. And there's, so, there's mysteries in these passages. There's mysteries in these verses. This is it. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh, (laughs) for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This passage is so wondrous. It's so mysterious. It's how, how do we. How do we even handle this text that in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell? Now, I think we live in a very privileged era in that a lot of theology and heresy has already been sussed out by the church for us through church history. Um, And remember, we talked about uh, the four, uh, if you're going to build a Christology, the four places to go in the Bible. We've got uh, Philippians 2, we've got Hebrews 1, John 1, and Colossians 1. And if you go there, that's where you can really form a really um, wonderful Christology. Who is the Jesus? Who is the Christ? Who is Jesus? And what I want to do is I want to give us a brief about a brief moment into our history as a church. I feel like uh, church history is so helpful. History is helpful in general to understand what has gone before and what is coming. And I, a lot of us don't get an opportunity to study church history. And so I just want to take a brief moment and dive into church history and talk about this passage. So place yourself with me in the city of Alexandria, northern Egypt. The year is 312 AD. The bishop of Alexandria is a man named Alexander, and I think that's the best. And Alexander is teaching. He's the bishop, and he's got all these local pastors there, and he's, and he's teaching, and he's talking, and he's teaching on the Trinity, and he's talking about Jesus and the Father and the Spirit and how they're of the same essence. They're one. And there was a man, a pastor named Arius, who was in the room. And he stood up and he objected. He said, I don't think that's what the Bible says. What do you mean? And Arius started saying, well, Jesus is the son of God. There's distinction there. And how, how can then Jesus and God be of the same substance if then he's the son of God? That doesn't make sense. And so this debate starts to rise and foment and percolate and it it ends up sweeping across the roman empire who is jesus 
And so then the very first of the, I don't even know what to call it, early church uh, first councils, the non-apostolic era anyways, was called the Council of Nicaea in 325 to talk about, is Jesus really God? Or is he the son of God? Is he fully God? What, who is Jesus? Who is this person? Now, again, you and I sit in the luxury of hundreds of years later where we agree Jesus is God. He's fully God. So what happens, actually, there's some great stories about the Council of Nicaea. Uh, Arius shows up. Alexander shows up. A guy called Athanasius shows up who ends up becoming the bishop of Alexandria later. And they gather all the bishops of the church all across the empire, and they all gather together, and they talk about this. And the council soundly rejects Arius's view. Totally. This is not, and, and, and label it heresy. This is, this is not the case. Now, here's why it's heresy to, to believe that Jesus is not fully God. If Jesus is not fully God, then who died for you on the cross? God didn't die for you on the cross anymore. Who can take away your sins? God can. There are all these things. Now, I think that, well, historians point to the reason why this heresy swept across the land so quickly, and they think it's because people were very comfortable with the idea of a demigod or the son of God. There are myths about Hercules and, and heroes of old, you know, kind of like that. There were demigods. And so people in a syncretistic Christianity that was forming between Christianity and the Roman Empire were very comfortable with the idea of Jesus being a demigod and not being fully God. I think part of the reason why it, this heresy became so popular is because this mystery of the verse we just read is so hard to grasp, particularly if we have a high theology of Yahweh, if we have a high theology of our creator, this, this mystery becomes a challenge for us. So what I want to do is I want to just spend some time um, pondering the fullness of God in this passage. Verse 19 says, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And by the way, this passage is one of the reasons that Arianism was so soundly rejected. And by the way, Arian, Arianism is alive and well today. It's not called that anymore. Does anyone know what it's called today? Or who believes it? It's Jehovah's Witness. Jesus is the Son of God. Mormons, Jesus is the Son of God. Arianism is alive and well today. Okay. So what does it mean? How, how can we even begin to ponder this mystery of in him, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. There's, there's, there's personification of the fullness of God. There's pleasure there. This, this fullness is pleased to dwell in Jesus. And I, I want to do something that we don't normally do, which is read a massive chunk of scripture. Part of the reason we don't read a massive chunk of scripture all the time is because we tend to zone out when we hear long sections of scripture. Um, but I, I am in a class right now in the pastoral epistles in First and Second Timothy and Titus, and there's this passage in First uh, Timothy that was really convicting to me. First Timothy 4.13 says, Until I come, so this is Paul talking to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. I feel like we do a pretty good job of the teaching, at least giving time to it, and exhortation, 
And the public reading of scripture would kind of tuck away because, you know, we're in an era of attention spans that are very short. But what I want to do this morning is I want to read an, this beautiful prophecy in Isaiah, and I want to read it over you. And I'm going to read an entire chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 40. And the reason I want to read this whole chapter is twofold. One, to be faithful to the public reading of scripture. And two, is because I want this poem to capture in our hearts an image of what the fullness of God is. So if it's helpful to close your eyes, do it. If it's helpful to read along, do it. If it's helpful to uh, sketch or draw while I talk, do it. Um, But whatever you need to do to engage with the words of the Bible over you right now. So here it is, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? enclosed the dust of the earth in measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like a fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him? An idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will 
Not Rob. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Did you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings the princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded from my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait on Yahweh shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, let's skip the rest of the sermon and sing, right? Man, that's our God. That's our God. The fullness of our God who measures the oceans, cups them in his hands, who measures the heavens with the span of his hand. That's our God who brings the nations to nothing. That's our God. And we, and we know, him. know him. We know, we who, know who he is. And he's here and he's with us. This truth doesn't, it, it doesn't, it hardly fits into my head. The fullness then of God was pleased to dwell in a tiny baby in a manger in Bethlehem, which is like ultimate Hicksville, 2,000 years ago. All of that, all that beauty and wonder and majesty that we just experienced in a child, in a little baby. Man, it, this mystery is so beautiful and so wonderful we will spend the entirety of our lives contemplating how can the fullness of God take on flesh and become a man. And then, as I'm thinking about this, a question starts to kind of percolate at the back of my mind. And the, and the question is, why? Why is this mystery even a thing? Why did, why did the fullness of that God, of Yahweh, our God, dwell 
in, in, in a baby. Why? And then I, and then I keep reading. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. You know, we have this incredible mystery that we feel like our, our minds can barely hold on to. And in this mystery, we see the purpose for this wondrous weight is for reconciliation. And we know, we go way back in the story, we go all the way back to Genesis 3. And we see a broken relationship. Who screwed up the relationship? We did. Who is taking it upon himself to reconcile the relationship? He is. He's the offended party. We're the ones who screwed up. And he's the one who comes to us to reconcile us to himself. <laughs> what? How can we hold this wonder in our hearts every day? How can we sit in the weight of this beauty and this glory? How do we, <laughs> how do, we do it? I've spent all week with this. A, it, a burden is, a, is the wrong word. It's, it's a weight on my soul of the wonder of this. The fullness of God entering into humanity to reconcile relationship. Now, as we're using this word reconciliation, by the way, any parents here, if I use a big word like reconciliation and don't explain it, I want you to like have your kids call me out on not explaining what the word means. Here's reconciliation. Reconciliation is making things right, making an account correct. It's used two ways. One is reconciling relationships, where there's brokenness in a relationship, and then it's reconciled. Another way is my first job ever was a Dairy Queen. I was 15, and I did uh, the food. I made hamburgers and fries, and I hear a beeping, and to this day, I go, check the fries. Check the fries. I know there are fries here somewhere. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they would make, they would do, they would, I, I think they would call it do the reconciliation, or I'm going to reconcile. And what they meant was they would check how the sales of the day to the cash in the cash register. They would make sure the two accounts were reconciled. And we actually see this a little bit, even in Isaiah 40, where we were talking, where we were just reading from, where the, the mountains are brought down and the valleys are brought up. There's this equalization, this meeting at the middle that's happening, this reconciliation. That's reconciliation. And Jesus took on flesh The fullness of God took on flesh to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So if we mean that's what reconciliation is, that suddenly means that you and I are reconciled to God. And that has incredible implications for our reality. The first implication is, if we are there now therefore reconciled to God, oughtn't we ought to be reconciled with each other as his family, as his kids? 
Implication number one. Implication number two. If we've been reconciled, our relationship with God is is right there. Doesn't that mean that we should live a certain way? And what does that certain way mean? I think those are the two main implications that I'm getting from this. And it, it could be because I feel like that's where Paul goes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? I want to read this. And by the way, I think it's important to note that in 2 Corinthians 4, this is, we talked about this in the Acts series, but this is the final letter we have between Paul and the city of Corinth. Um, And I think it's the fifth letter, actually. Um, Am I remembering that right? Yes, I think so. I think there are five letters. And this is the last one. And he just received Titus with a letter from the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was apologizing. The Corinthian church had so deeply wronged Paul. They were questioning his apostolic authority. They were, uh, they were being just straight up rude and rejecting his leadership. And, and there's so much pain there. And now they've sent a letter apologizing. And this is Paul's response then to them. But I want to start reading um, in chapter 4. And I want to start reading here. Um, Oh, is it 1 Corinthians? Hold on. I would have sworn this. Hold on just a minute. Of 2 Corinthians? Now, hold on just a minute, you guys. I was so in, just in awe of this wonder, I didn't get my references right. How about that? Oh, 514. You see, that's the thing. I type it in, and I punch the wrong number. 514. Apologize for that. 2 Corinthians 514. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That makes a ton of sense to me. We live now for the creator who made us and then took on human flesh to reconcile relationship with us. That's who you and I live for now. That's who we set our minds and our hearts on now. Okay, let me keep reading. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Do you know why? Because we all died in the flesh. Our flesh was killed on the cross. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I tell you what, if you're in conflict with someone, this is such a beautiful passage to go to. Because not only is it true of you, but it's true of the person you're in conflict with. Man. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Wait, wait, what? What? Hold on. I'm gonna read this again. Whoa. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Okay. I'm there. I'm with you and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The fullness of God took on human form. The God who, who sweeps his hand and covers the stars took on humanity to reconcile himself to us so that we could be reconciled and then turns to us and says, here, here you go. You now have a ministry of reconciliation. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you have this same mission that I have gone on and done for you. You therefore now go and reconcile. You carry on this ministry of reconciliation. I'm going to keep reading. Verse 19. That is, in Christ God was reconciling to the world himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Man, what a, what a powerful passage. You and I have been given a ministry of reconciliation, a message of reconciliation. There's so much going on in this text. There's identity. It's who we are. It's mission. It's where we need to go. And it's Christmas. Because God took on human flesh. So now we are a new humanity or a new creation and we have something we need to do. And I want to, I want to end with, with the thought of, with three questions. What does the reality of the fullness of God taking on human flesh to reconcile us back to himself, making peace through the blood of the cross? What implications does that have? And I want to I put it through three lenses. What does that mean? Uh, what does that mean for the world? What does that mean for us as a church? And what does that mean for me individually? I think I can often fall into the trap of only landing on what does this mean for me individually? It's because we live and breathe the air of individualism. I think we've all heard at some point or another, Christ died for you. If no one else existed in the world, he still would have died for you, which is very true. We just live in a world with 7 billion people and not just you. <laughs> what does it mean? What does this truth mean for the world? It means that there's hope. It means that there is a God pursuing the world around us, the darkness around us, the brokenness around us, and pursuing it to bring reconciliation, to make things right, to make things new, to make things beautiful. That's what it means for the world. Okay, what does that mean for us as a church, as a family?
It means that we're reconciled to God. It means that the God who died for us, who was born for us, who lived for us, we're in right relationship with him. And that means that then we're in turn in right relationship with one another. What does it mean for me? It means that everywhere I go, everything I do, I have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And that's what it means for you too. You don't, you're, the church does the ministry. I think sometimes we think of church staff or pastors as the one who do ministry. Nope. You know what our job is? Equip the saints to do works of ministry. You guys do ministry. You all have a ministry of reconciliation at your work, in your neighborhood, everywhere you go. You have a ministry of reconciliation given to you by your creator, which if that's not enough, <laughs> that same creator took on humanity and then died for you and then turned to you and said, hey, can you help me with this? And family, I'm ashamed to say how often I say, not right now. I'm too busy. I'm trying to get something done. This Christmas season is incredible to me because, I mean, even the songs that people are singing, I mean, there's so much Jesus in those songs. It's like, and they don't even care. And you're like, oh man, you're singing truth. Oh, holy night. You're like, yeah, it was. Keep going. Let's have conversations with people. And by the way, we don't have to like force this on people. We don't have to like make this super awkward. We live a life, a reconciled life. And we talk about it. And we join in on what we were created for and what we were created to do. Does that sound good? That sound like a plan. I'm so grateful for this whole poem. Can I read the whole thing for us one more time before we close? I'm going to pray for us. And after I'm done praying, um, we're, we're going to ponder the beauty of the fullness of God dwelling in him, in Jesus, um, by, by taking the bread and the cup together. So let me, let me read this, this Christ poem over us one last time. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Lord, I'm so grateful for that truth and that reality. I'm so grateful. I'm just overwhelmed.
Lord, I pray as we gather and we give thanks on Thursday that we would be a people giving thanks to you for what you've done. That we would somehow carry this awe and wonder of these truths that we've all heard a million times, but we would carry them in our hearts this week in a way that it would go from our heart to our hands, to our mouths, to our lips, where we would share your truth and your beauty and your grace. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's go ahead and grab the bread and the cup, and I'll do the same.